Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we ventilate weird and wonderful science through your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special edition, Professor Lydia Marowska talks about the steps we still haven't taken to reduce airborne transmission of COVID-19. Mandatory ventilation. Lydia Marowska is a distinguished professor in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Queensland University of Technology, the director of the International Laboratory of Air Quality and Health, which is a World Health Organisation collaborating centre on air quality and health, and a co-director in Australia for the Australia-China Centre for Air Quality Science and Management. I spoke to her by phone, since the internet connection between Sydney and Brisbane kept disconnecting her from Zoom. I began by asking Professor Morawska, COVID is spread through the air. So what can we do to reduce its spreading on public transport, in supermarkets, in schools, everywhere public that people go? Well, this is correct, Ian. COVID spreads by the air, and this is uh, the most significant mode of transmission of the virus. So what we need to do, we need to do everything we can to remove it from the air. This is the only way, really, to look at it. To remove it from the air means to increase ventilation. When I say increased ventilation, you would be surprised that there are so many places, public spaces, where there's basically no ventilation. Windows closed, there's no mechanical ventilation, so there's no ventilation, no means of removing the virus. So all the focus really should be on making people aware of the problem that the virus is in the air and putting efforts to increase ventilation to remove it from the air. At the moment, as far as I'm aware, we're not doing anything. We've got hotel quarantine where it all seems to be one big collection of dirty air and people are getting infected in quarantine as a result. What should they be doing in the hotels to improve ventilation and filtering? Well, I had numerous conversations with people involved with quarantine hotels or at the higher level mandating things to do. And I've made it very clear, every hotel should be reviewed in terms of what's the ventilation system in that hotel, Uh, checking what's the uh, amount of ventilation, checking which way the air is going, and ensuring that air from the rooms where the hotel's guests are staying is not going to any other areas. If it's not possible to ensure this means that the hotel should not operate as a quarantine hotel, that's what it is. There's no kind of general rule saying do just that one thing and things will be fixed because there are different designs, hotels operate differently. But each hotel is operated by a team of engineering team who is capable of checking the ventilation situation, flow direction and so on. So this can be done, but as I said, every hotel should be checked. My understanding is that the quarantine centres far up north that we were using, they're individual little chalets, little individual demountable buildings, so that they're not sharing any air. They've got no public spaces to share, and there's been no transmission there. 
Well, this clearly demonstrates what is the way of preventing bone tra uh, transmission. It is not to share the air. So in this in the situations when quarantine people stay in individual which are separated from other hats, well, there's no sharing of the infected air, therefore no one is infected. So that's the that's really the proof that airborne transmission is what's happening. And what can we do for public transport? Well, transport is a bit different situation because in addition to the need to control ventilation, like in any public spaces, the problem is the proximity of people. If people are staying or sitting next to each other within a distance of half a meter or even less touching people, so even if ventilation is good, this is not sufficient to prevent infection. So in public transport, particularly during the pandemic, on the one hand, ventilation has to be increased, and this can be done. Every bus, every train has means to increase ventilation. But in addition, masks should be worn on public transport. There's no other way around this. But buses at the moment and trains don't have windows that can open. They're all air-conditioned. Is there some way of making the air conditioning do some sort of filtering or ways to remove the virus from the air? I'm not entirely familiar with the designs of the different types of public transport, but public transport has ventilation system, and ventilation system should have filters anyway. So, and I'm pretty sure that many of the systems are also capable of bringing fresh air, air from outside. So this should be really maximized, bringing air from outside, such that the ventilation is as high as possible. Or if that's not possible and air is returned, checking whether there's filtration system. If air is just recirculated and if it's not going through any filters, well, this is maximizing a transmission and this should be well addressed in a different way. How do we measure how fresh the air is in a building or like a supermarket? Well, there are many different ways of measuring well freshness of the air or how clean the air is. There are many indicators or pollutants that could be measured. In relation to what we are interested in, which is infection spread, which means what's emitted by people, one of the best measures is checking concentration of carbon dioxide, like the viruses, and we all exhale carbon dioxide when reason speaking, that's our fundamental function. If ventilation is inadequate, then concentration of the carbon dioxide accumulates in the in the space. And therefore, concentration of carbon dioxide is, the, is a good proxy for ventilation. It's very sensitive as well. So you immediately see if there's a person enters the space, ventilation inadequate, CO2 concentration goes up. There are many types of relatively low-cost carbon dioxide sensors. So this should be checked, mandated for all public spaces right now. So that sounds like something that could be done immediately, that we could put in a regulation for public spaces to have carbon dioxide meters and what safe levels are and what's too much and what they would need to do about it. It could be done immediately and it's very easy. Since the beginning of the pandemic, after the lockdowns finished last year, going out and entering any public spaces, I was measuring carbon dioxide using my own carbon dioxide meter. 
And I was shocked sometimes to find out how high the concentrations were in other places. On the other hand, the concentrations were not that high. But I could immediately tell what the problem is if I looked at the measurements. And interestingly, it is not something I was able to always tell just by looking around and inspecting the indoor space. Sometimes you can't quite tell whether the mechanical ventilation system works or not. Sometimes you feel air flow, air breeze, but it then turns out that this is a split system air conditioner, which just conditions the air, but it's not bringing fresh air. So there were situations I couldn't tell, but the meter would tell me immediately, is ventilation bad or is ventilation good? So this is a simple measure which can be implemented immediately. I think one of the problems we've also got is that Australian homes aren't designed for much ventilation other than opening a window, and often there's not even a cross breeze. This is a very big problem because most Australian homes are designed to be naturally ventilated. And if it's cold outside, well, people don't open the windows to preserve any warmth which is inside. So, yes, indeed, it is a big problem. And particularly the problem is not only, of course, for the family living there, but if there are any visitors to this home who can contract the virus or who invited them. So, yes, this this is a big problem. And, of course, COVID isn't the only concern with air quality. We had those major fires 2019-2020 when Sydney, for example, and lots of other places around Australia were shrouded in smoke for a very long time. And if you're ventilating outside, the indoor air is going to be pretty bad. This is exactly the problem which we try to highlight in our science paper, which was published in May and called for a paradigm shift how we look at indoor air quality in general and all the risks which are there. So on the one hand, during the pandemic or in relation to infection transmission, we would advocate open the windows and get the virus out. But on the other hand, when there is a bush smoke outside, we would say close the window and make sure that nothing from outside in terms of pollution gets inside. The problem is that our homes and our buildings in general are not designed for this, not flexible enough to be able to deal with one situation and the other. So on a longer term, we really need to reconsider how we design buildings so they are capable of doing both to prevent us from what we exhale indoors, but also if the air is polluted outside. And very importantly, do it in an energy-efficient manner, because we cannot afford buildings to consume more energy than they do. And there are technologies to, to do this, technologies which can help to achieve both objectives. However, we need to realize these risks, and therefore we need to want to use these technologies. Should schools be going out and buying air purifiers, or, or what can we do to change things without redesigning our buildings? This is a very good point. And many say, okay, it is too complicated to do something to, to the existing buildings, to retrofit the, the buildings, not only too complicated and too costly. So what we can do on short term now, immediately, if nothing else can be done, if there's no means for, for increasing ventilation, 
for whatever reasons, then air purifier is a way to go. And this, I mean, there are many systems who, which are efficient, and they've been shown to remove the concentration of the virus of the particles in the air very significantly. Of course, it is important then to make sure that the right purifier is used for the space for which it is intended, so it's sufficiently high volume. And also, if the if the space is complex, like say several wings or or different complex shape, then maybe more than one purifier is needed. But indeed, this is this is a solution which could and should be implemented on a short term. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Scientists think that most colds are caused by extremely small microorganisms called viruses. Viruses, and there are many different kinds of them, can be scattered with each particle of saliva and mucus. When one sneezes or coughs, for instance. But do not think for a moment that cold-producing viruses are spread only by sneezing and coughing. Even during an ordinary conversation, Saliva and mucus particles escape our mouth and easily reach others who inhale them as they breathe. You see, what you think is a simple cold could really be the first symptoms of some other disease, such as measles, infantile paralysis, diphtheria, whooping cough, scarlet fever, influenza, and others. Wash your hands frequently and thoroughly, especially before eating. When you wash your hands, you wash away many of the disease-carrying smudges you may have picked up. Do we need a different kind of mask to take account of the fact that it's not little droplets, it's tiny aerosols, it's like smoke? I beg to differ, it's not like smoke, it is still much bigger than smoke. Smoke is a combustion product, and particles from combustion uh, combustion processes in general are much smaller. They are in the so-called ultrafine particle size range, which means predominantly below 0.1 micrometer. However, particles carrying viruses are much bigger than this, at least an order of magnitude bigger than this. They, this virus, COVID, is about 0.1 micrometer. So particles carrying them are even bigger than this. So we are talking about particles of about uh, 0.5 micrometer. So there are bigger. The, the point is that there are many different types of masks which are reasonably efficient for community transmissions. We published papers on this. So it is not that there is urgent need for better masks. What I would argue the need is for a better way of wearing masks. If you walk around and look how people wear masks, you will see that a significant fraction of people don't wear masks properly. And what I mean by this, it's not kind of scientifically proper way, but but very simply, they are not on their noses. So if a mask is just on the line of the nose and all the air is going between the nose and the mask or below the nose, which what we often see, the mask, of course, is not doing anything. So one very important means is that the masks are worn properly and that people are diligent in doing this. 
They could be masks which don't fit specific people. In our research some years ago, we realized that there are some faces which, on which we had problems fitting certain types of masks. In particular, we did masks, the closed mask, not, not that much surgical mask or N95 mask, but the closed mask which people buy. You can see very clearly that they are just hanging on the ears and they are sliding down. And the people continuously fidgeting with them, trying to put them up. They simply don't fit. So this is not very complicated. You, that's something everybody sees immediately, whether the mask fits or not, whether they are wearing it properly, such that it's tightly around the nose, if not. So this is really the key issue. Right. So we need people to wear the masks properly or to be trained to wear them properly? It's hard to know what it takes to get people to make sure it goes over their nose. Well, just look in the mirror and you'll see where the mask is. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really not that difficult. So you'll see whether it's tightly snuggling around your nose or not. If people, from a different example, if people are cold, they know very well what to do to put the scarf or a, or a head properly so it's tightly around the neck, ears and so on. That's the same story. It has to be tightly around the nose. And if it's not, it's not working. Right. So people just have to pay attention. That's exactly right. People have to pay attention. But in many situations, I would say that people deliberately don't worry about this or pretend that they are wearing a mask if they feel that this is not convenient. And I've seen many situations like this. For example, some people have problems wearing mask results in fogging their glasses. Well, of course, it is a problem. So then the question is what to do about this. Maybe it's a different mask, maybe different arrangements of this. But in this situation, if this happens, instead of trying to figure out what's, the, what's a better solution, people just lower the mask below the nose and pretend that they are wearing the mask, while in fact the mask is not doing anything. Yes. I mean, it is a common problem with glasses fogging. I know that I only wear masks that have a little wire bit to shape around the top of my nose, and that stops the steam coming up to my glasses. Yes. I, I have the same problem when I, I don't wear reading glasses, but uh, sunglasses. So, And I have a little collection of sunglasses match different outfits. Some are bigger, some are smaller. So I worked out which sunglasses work with the mask and the grey dots which are slightly smaller and which as a result of which the sunglasses are not fogged. So again this is not very complicated. You was you're saying that you've published a paper recently. Can you tell us a bit more about that research? It's not a new research. Everybody expects that there was some new knowledge <laughs> generated which kind of Eureka, that's what it is. That's not the case. We knew how infections are transmitted and that respiratory infections are transmitted through the air. We knew this for a long time. It is just that, in particular, public health authorities haven't considered this and haven't put this in action. So the focus has been on bringing this to the attention to all the public health authorities, starting from the very top, including the World Health Organization, which has been slowly changing their recommendations to include the focus on airborne transmission, and then national and state authorities as well. paper which I mentioned, which was recently published in the Journal of Science, is has been going 
beyond just what to do about infection transmission. It was talking about the paradigm change, how we see this whole field, which means how we design buildings and how we protect ourselves in buildings against infection transmission, taking into account the economy of this. There's often an argument brought forward of, that it is costly. So if we have to do anything to our buildings, to the existing buildings, or to our future buildings, the cost of this would be enormous. The point is that the calculations and assessment done, what would the cost be if for new buildings showed that the initial investment cost would be not, no more than about 1%. Of course, the cost of retrofitting could be higher dependently what, what the building is. But then if you look on the other hand on the costs of not just this pandemic, which has been assessed as one trillion US dollars per month, but just common colds, influenzas, and this type of uh, common respiratory infections, which affect us every year outside the pandemic. The costs of this are very high. In Australia, it's been assessed at about, it's a window, but uh, the upper range a few years ago was about $140 million per year. So if we compare with that 1% increase in the new building of the infrastructure, compared with all the costs we bear later, well, the economy is quite clear. And in this cost, it's usually the medical costs accounted for, but not costs of lost productivity, absentees, and so on. So the actual costs are even much higher. So the economy is quite clear here. And do you know if the state or federal governments are paying attention to these things that they could do to reduce transmission through the air? Well, I would ask a question back to you. Have you ever heard the word ventilation from any national authorities or any state authorities? I'm talking about any recommendations from any government. We are very familiar with all the icons, the signs about uh, physical distancing, the crowding and so on, uh, hand washing. But have you seen an icon telling people about ventilation? Not at all. An icon like this doesn't exist. If you heard from any state authorities telling people ventilate, I haven't, because no state or federal authorities mentioned anything of this. So this is something which, as a, a scientist from many different areas of science related to infection transmission, we've been trying to put this information and the need to the governments, but so far to no avail. Do you recommend we write to our local MPs or how do we try and persuade the government that this is something that they're not doing that they should be doing? Well, if I knew what to do, I would do this. Yeah. I've been writing to all the authorities and so far no one has listened. But I would encourage everybody and any group, any person to do this, to write to whoever they can, to their local members of parliament saying this is important, please influence action on this. Part of the problem, however, is that by and large, the community is not aware of this risk. So if people themselves don't realize that this is a risk to them, they don't do anything. And I've been watching over the past few weeks in Queensland, when going to in Brisbane, when going to restaurants before the current lockdown, 
situations when I was absolutely horrified. People come from the streets, take off the masks, because, of course, in the restaurant we didn't need to wear masks during, during the dinner. The, ventil- the restaurant is not ventilated at all. Everything is closed up. The restaurant is full to the capacity. And no one blinks that there is a huge risk, one infected person in a venue like this, and the whole place is infected. So people themselves must realize that this is a problem. And if they realize that this is a problem, then they are more empowered to demand action on this. Well, I hope we've got some of the story out in the podcast, in the radio show, and people will be a little bit more educated and maybe contact their local politicians. Very much hoping for this, and if we achieve this goal, I'll be extremely happy. Well, Lydia, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on the program, Ian. Thank you. That was Professor Lydia Morawska from the Queensland University of Technology, talking about how we can improve indoor air quality to reduce the transmission of COVID-19, if we can persuade politicians to regulate ventilation standards. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MBR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? 
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.